The Sheridan downtown Atlanta is shuttered after being linked to 11 cases of Legionnaire's disease, and that number is likely to grow. My first thought is, should I be breathing in here? And then my second thought is, I need to find another hotel. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, how Legionnaire spreads and how the outbreak is hitting summer tourism and Dragon Con less than a month away. And it's the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall of the South. I first looked up and turned around and saw four policemen in the in the back row, and someone else yelled, what's going on? And another one said, we're being raided. Hear a first-hand account of the Ansley Mall Cinema Raid, which galvanized LGBT communities in the South. Plus, despite threats to pull out, major film productions are still churning in Georgia. Learn what's actively filming around the state. When On Second Thought begins, first, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Eleven confirmed cases of Legionnaire's disease have been linked to the Sheridan Hotel in downtown Atlanta, with another 55 cases considered quite probable, according to the Georgia Department of Health. While the the hotel voluntarily closed its doors for testing on July 15th, with a proposed reopening set for mid-August, maybe longer, which puts reopening up close to Dragon Con events scheduled there on Labor Day weekend. Here with more about the outbreak and its impact on tourism is Dr. Allison Chamberlain. She's Research Assistant Professor of Epidemiology for MMU University School of Public Health and joins us in the studio. Hello, Dr. Chamberlain. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Also with us, Amy Wink. She's a reporter for the Atlanta Business Chronicle, where she covers commercial real estate, hospitality, retail, and entertainment. Amy, hello. Good morning. Good morning to both of you. So I'm going to start with you, Allison. Legionnaire's disease, it's considered a serious kind of pneumonia, from what I understand, linked with the Legionella bacteria, a naturally occurring bacteria. Mm -hmm. So how does a person contract the disease? Yeah, so a person um, contracts Legionnaire's disease when they breathe in water vapor that contains Legionella bacteria. And um, what happens is, is if a person is, um, you know, has certain risk factors, primarily um, being over the age of 50, immunocompromised, having underlying lung conditions, they're more susceptible to complications um, from Legionnaire's disease and can have very serious complications. Um, but you, bre- you get it by breathing in this water vapor that has the bacteria in it. And are we yet sure that those who are suspected to have Legionnaire's disease have it, have contracted it? For those who are suspected to have Legionnaire's disease, no, we're not sure yet. You actually have to have laboratory confirmation that you you indeed have the bacteria in your lungs. Can it be lethal? It can be lethal. About 5 to 15% of cases will will die, unfortunately, from this disease. Wow. What are, what are some of the symptoms related to Legionnaires? Sure. So some of the symptoms are um, shortness of breath, fatigue, headache, fever, um, sometimes nausea, um, and cough primarily after the first few days. So some context here. This was first named Legionnaire's disease by two AP reporters covering mysterious deaths among attendees of an American Legion conference back in 1976. As America celebrated its 200th birthday as an independent nation, its birthplace, Philadelphia, played host to millions of tourists and hundreds of business gatherings. Philadelphia made history that summer, but not for the bicentennial. It was the mysterious death of 34 people that left a tragic legacy and launched the most extensive medical investigation in history. 
That is a clip, a rather dramatic clip from the Forensic Files, illustrating truly how frightening it was. Allison, why does it commonly happen in hotels? That's a great question. So there's a lot of factors that can lead to um, the Legionella bacteria um, growing in, in premise plumbing, which is what can happen in large buildings like hotels. And the reason why it, it can happen more often in those large buildings is that there's, there's a lot of plumbing. There's a lot of plumbing lines. There's a lot of places for water to be aerosolized, like shower heads, spas, saunas, pools, hot tubs. Those are types of sources um, for water to be vaporized. And um, in, in, that, in that case, hotels are sort of a, um, a, pro a problem area for this particular bacteria in, in their premise plumbing. As have hospitals been, yes. some municipal buildings. Amy, you've been reporting on economic impacts of the outbreak, and the Sheridan's a huge hotel, headquarters for conferences like Dragon Con. How much money do, do they stand to lose? So the Sheraton is really a critical component of Atlanta's downtown convention business. It's the city's sixth largest hotel. It's got nearly 800 rooms. So this is where people are staying for the largest conventions and events that come to the city. Um, so if it's closed about a month, I did some rough calculations based on average um, hotel occupancy and room rates, and it's easily losing a million dollars in gross revenue, if not closer to $2 million. Right. But really, um, it's more than just the impact of this lost business. Um, you know, if the problem uh, due to the outbreak is at the hotel, there's going to be costs to repair that. And they're going to have to do it in a way that restores the confidence of people who uh, stay there moving forward. Um, but really, the unknown impact is in the reputation of the hotel. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody that Googles this hotel from this point on is going to come up with these news reports. So, you know, what's the long term effect of that? Um, in their reputation. Is there insurance for this kind of thing for hotels? Yeah, so it's pretty standard that hotels have business interruption insurance um, to cover these types of events. There's also, there's always going to be a deductible or cost related to that, so they probably won't recoup all of their the costs that they lose on this. Yeah, so, what, but do, as you said, reputation, once people hear of a Legionnaire's outbreak, even beyond the hotel, does it impact tourism in a place like Atlanta? Um, so I spoke with a gentleman at the Atlanta Conventioners, Convention and Visitors Bureau, and you know he felt like the hotel has done a really good job. They didn't have to close; that was voluntary. They did a good job relocating the guests. Thankfully, there's you know 10,000 hotel rooms downtown, um, so the convention business should be okay. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about the Dragon Con upcoming, that's yeah a big event. It's the city's third largest event. You know, 85,000 people come to that. It has an economic impact of 80 million dollars, and the Sheridan has been a host hotel for that event since 2007. Mm -hmm. So I spoke with a spokesman for Dragon Con, and they're really hopeful that the hotel reopens. Uh, they rely on the Sheraton. It not only hosts their guests, but some of their programming, their registration area. Um, so if everything is open and safe for guests, they hope to move forward with the Sheraton. Um, if not, they do have contingency plans in place. Amy Wank there. She was a, a reporter from the Atlanta Business Chronicle. Also with us, Dr. Allison Chamberlain from Emory's School of Public Health. Allison, so this idea that there are 55 suspected cases, mm -hmm. now what does that mean? So that means that these are individuals um, who uh, likely, most of them probably stayed at the hotel at some point um, prior to the hotel's closing, that um, public health uh, officials and physicians are investigating to see if they, um, if their symptoms that they, that might be um, uh, 
uh, attributable to um, some type of pneumonia are mm. in fact Legionnaire's disease. So they're watching them. They're probably waiting on some laboratory tests to see if they do indeed have confirmed Legionnaire's disease. What can hotels do to prevent this this buildup of that bacteria in their systems? Sure. So um, hotels can have proactive water management plans in place to actually routinely test their water for water safety parameters like pH, temperature, chlorine levels, um, as well as the Legionella bacteria itself. And that's really important to routinely test for that bacteria. Um, so they can have those types of things in place prior. Um, but if they find themselves in a situation like this, then the best thing to do is to do what the Sheridan did and, and close and do the testing that needs to be done. And what they'll do is they'll take water samples from all across the hotel. They'll take it from the furthest rooms away to the spas, to the pools, and they'll work with um, most likely a third party company to to test those samples and see if they can actually find the bacteria and hopefully find where the majority of it might be in you know in the hotel how is legionnaire's disease treated so it's a good question. It's treated with with antibiotics. So um, a person who is diagnosed with Legionnaire's disease, um, because it's a it's a type of pneumonia caused by a bacteria, most antibiotics that are routinely given for pneumonia can treat Legionnaire's disease. Amy, I'm wondering if a hotel does manage to, you know, you mentioned if now if someone Googles Sheridan Atlanta, they're going to find Legionnaire's disease outbreak there. Even if they manage to rid itself of the bacteria, does business bounce back? So I spoke with a former general manager of the Sheraton, and he said it's really challenging. Yeah, I mean, a, a hotel may never recover from this. Uh, the the best thing that they can do is, you know, be super sensitive, uh, make sure the problem is fixed, reassure the public that it is, and move, press forward as best they can. So how does this impact the employees at the hotel? Are they just out of work while the repairs are being done? Uh, so there's about four or 500 workers at the Sheraton. And um, it's actually, there's a hotel management company, um, HEI Hotels and Resorts, that has that property. And um, they sent us a statement and said that they were doing everything they could to either redeploy their uh, employees to other hotels that they have in the area or um, have those employees work in off-site locations. And this HEI Hotels uh, management company, they have several other Georgia properties, including the Whitley Hotel in Buckhead, mm -hmm. um, the hotel at Avalon in Alpharetta, Chateau Alain. So there's opportunities for those workers to in be, the area. To be reassigned. The number of confirmed Legionnaires cases has been on the rise in recent years. The number of people with the disease grew nearly four times between 2000 and 2014. That's according to the CDC. Allison, are there theories to explain these growing numbers? So there are, and it's very complex. Um, experts believe that it has to do with a variety of factors, ranging from um, aging water infrastructure to um, climate change and making our water warmer in general, um, and uh, increasing number of people who are sort of aging into those um, risk factor categories. Like I said, individuals who are older, immunocompromised, who have underlying other you know lung conditions. Um, so it's sort of a myriad factors that um, we think are contributing to this rise. Um, and it's not one one particular thing, but it's it's sort of a, a complex um, amalgam of different factors. But also hearing about, you know, this in hotels and the norovirus, you know, on cruise ships, that could put a real damper on tourism, can it? I mean, the idea that you could go and be exposed in these places. I guess it's a, a wait and see kind of thing. 
So Dragon Con, as you mentioned, big on the horizon, big money maker for the city. They're trying to, what are they doing to try and mobilize and try and take care of all the guests who are signed up to come? I mean, so they shared with me that, of course, the health and safety of their fans is their number one priority and making sure that they have the best experience at the convention. Um, so they weren't, they wouldn't share right now what their contingency plans are if the Sheridan is closed. They wanted to see what happens um, if it will reopen August 11th. Allison, is there anything that people can do to actually protect themselves from neuro, uh, from rather the Legionnaire's disease and that kind of bacteria? You walk into a hotel unknowing, not thinking about it when you turn on the shower or go in the pool. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one thing is that to to sort of be made aware of is that it's it's not that common. So um, there was about I guess 172 cases in Georgia last year, and while I say that um, it is re- it is underdiagnosed, so we know that that 172 number in Georgia was probably an under you know, an underdiagnosis number. However, um, people can do simple things. Like if you go into a hotel room and you're going to take a shower, go ahead and run the water for a minute or two before getting in. And that way, the water that may have been sitting behind the shower head in the pipe um, has a chance to flow through and sort of new fresh water comes in. So that's a little thing that, that folks can do. But um, what I would say is that, you know, you can't sort of really be too scared of this because it's not that common. Um, and you you can ask, you can inquire from hotels if they have a water management plan in place or what they're doing to test for Legionella bacteria. Um, but otherwise, it's one of those things that um, is is unfortunate and usually doesn't happen unless there is, um, you know, a, a proliferation or a growing um, number of bacteria that are in, in the premise plumbing or in a pool. And we really won't know that. Um, but it's not something that people need to be terribly scared of. So we mentioned that the Sheridan closed voluntarily. The right response to this kind of thing? What kind of decisions go into that, Amy? Uh, definitely. Uh, the executive at the Atlantic Convention and Visitors Bureau really applauded. They did not have to close, um, and that was a voluntary thing. Um, he also mentioned that the Sheraton is proceeding with its sales efforts. There's a really big convention coming up where, you know, all the different cities go to uh, sell their uh, hotels and meeting space. Um, And the Sheraton's going along to that convention. So this uh, source, you know, said that he didn't really feel like they were missing a beat, that they were doing everything that they could at this point um, to proceed. Amy Wank, she is a reporter at the Atlanta Business Chronicle. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. And Dr. Allison Chamberlain from Emory College's, Emory's College of Public Health. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stay with us. A behind-the-scenes look at what Hollywood projects are being made right in your backyard. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought continues. And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Here we go. Movie! We make films. Movies? Let's go to the movies. Let's go see the stars. It is where the walking dead roam the earth, Black Panther's home away from Wakanda, and the only spot where Donald Glover's Atlanta could possibly be made right here in Yollywood. And it is pretty 
tough to keep track of the many TV shows and movies filming in Georgia. So periodically we hear from Kalina Buller with On Set in Georgia. She joins us with a rundown. She's host of GPB's podcast, The Credits, and she's moderating a panel, a podcasting panel at the Macon Film Festival on August 17th. Kalina, so great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Good All right. to be back. I'm glad to have you. Let's start with one of the most popular characters from the Marvel franchise. Here she is, bound up in a chair in the 2012 film The Avengers. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. This moron is giving me everything. Look, you can't pull me out of this right now. Natasha. Barton's been compromised. Let me put you on hold. Black Widow is finally getting her own movie, and it is filming in Georgia. You worked on the set, Kalina. The character, incredibly popular. So is Scarlett Johansson, who plays her. So why has it taken this long for Black Widow to get a solo film? I don't know why it's taken this long. Um, I'm interested to see what they do with her story, because they always alluded to her background throughout every single movie she was featured in. So I'm pretty interested, because she's like, I don't know my family, I don't know my life, and we'll see what happens. We're going to see some family in life, I imagine. Well, okay, spoiler alert for the follow-up question here. If you haven't seen Avengers Endgame, please plug your ears for, I don't know, 30 seconds. Black Widow did plunge off a cliff in that film to save the world and yes. her closest friend. That's right. And the camera clearly showed her. How would Marvel justify bringing her back for movies now? I feel like it's got to be a prequel. You know what I mean? I I cannot see how they can go forward from here because once you sacrifice your soul for the soul stone that's it i mean they couldn't even bring her back in endgame once they brought all of of the missing and evaporated characters back so we'll black, black widow is not the only superhero battling villains in georgia right black lightning is back for a third season i know your husband has worked on that show yeah, and he's currently on the show all right mm-hmm. so he you interviewed the series star nafisa williams she plays anissa pierce or thunder and you spoke to her in her dressing room she showed you all the photos there here that are on her wall of inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear a clip. So we have Nia Wilson, Sandra Bland, Angela Davis is huge inspiration for who Thunder is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harriet Tubman, the original <laughs> gangster. Right. <laughs> she was uh, not playing. She, she played no games and I like to have that spirit. They also reference Harriet Tubman when they speak of me on the show That's a lot right. because she's, you know, such a thug. I just love the idea of, of Harry Tubman as an OG. Such a thug. Oh my god! But Thunder herself, gay African American female superhero, mm-hmm. and Nafisa clearly takes her role as a trailblazer seriously. Now the show's ratings have been though, but passable, I guess, by CW standards. Mm-hmm. What does it mean that fans want to watch the Pierce family for a third season and bring her back? I think what it means is we have been starved for so long for uh, different types of representation of black families. And I love the idea of an entire black super family in the way. And I think that translates across audiences. And so, yes, bring back a third season. Let's hope to get a fourth and fifth. All right, let's go for Black Lightning. <laughs> HBO is solidifying its place in Georgia by filming Lovecraft Country here. Features an African-American man traveling in the Jim Crow South, looking for his missing father. And in addition to the, the racist thugs of the time, they're monsters straight out of an H.P. Lovecraft novel. Some pretty heavy hitters behind it. Who's yeah. doing it? Who's making We've this? We've got Jordan Peele on board. We've got J.J. Abrams on board. We've got an Emmy-winning director and an executive producer on board. I mean, you cannot you cannot underestimate how important this is for Georgia and film and television across the board. We need all this content and people are starved for content. And so the more you get, 
it's just going to spell, you know, really good numbers for the bottom line. Well, earlier this year, HBO announced it is closing its door in its Long Island offices, moving jobs and some aspects of its operations to Atlanta. That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, any word that HBO, like Netflix, which says it's ready to rethink its investment in the state and Disney watching closely with the potential of a restrictive abortion law in Georgia, has that really changed the game? People are still a little bit on their toes here. But I will say it seemed that since the summer when this uh, conversation was really ramping up, production seems to have also ramped up a bit. So people are cautiously optimistic right now, which spells great things for people needing jobs here in Georgia and for, again, for people's budgets, because it's still cheap to film on location. When I say cheap, I'm not talking like, you know, Walmart cheap, but cheaper than some places to film here. And that is what executive producers and people that greenlight projects really look for. So money still talks. And we're seeing that. And on top of that, we have amazing crews here. And we get it. We get it done. In other news. Behold, Simi, life, real life, a thing that we have been denied for far too long. (laughs) Good morning, my neighbors. Coming to America, too, is coming to Georgia. Arsenio Hall, James Earl Jones have signed on for the project. And, of course, Eddie Murphy, who has been out of the limelight for a long time. He has. Tell us about his apparent preparations for a comeback right here in Georgia. I am... I am super excited. Fans of Eddie Murphy as a comedian are just needing this comeback. And the fact that he chose or the people that got this Coming to America 2 together, they wanted to do it here in Georgia. I'm... I cannot explain to you how excited I am. And I'm sure fans of his are super excited as well. Now, you've worked on another horror franchise. This is Getting Away from Comedy. Right. That films in Georgia that is coming back for its 10th season. Let's hear a little from that. That is from Conjuring. And when fans watch a Conjuring movie or The Walking Dead, it can be pretty scary. We're huddled in a dark movie theater or, or of course, alone at home at night. So what is it like on the set with dozens of people around and the set lights on? Well, I think that that clip was from The Walking Dead specifically. But Conjuring, the fact that we can't we still want these movies you know, we we love being scared, the jump scares. And uh, the new director that's coming out to do the Conjuring follow-up, uh, he's in that same vein. He loves to do the jump scares. And so even though James Wan is not involved directly as far as the uh, directing process, this is going to be good. Conjuring is, I'm excited about that one, personally. I like a jump scare every now and then. <laughs> and regarding Walking Dead, I can't believe, season 10, guys, I worked on the very first season. And that was unbelievable. You know, just being able to go out there and create something that was going to have a lasting effect. I mean, you know, Georgia's, we got it going on. Obviously, it is lasting. Kalina Buller, host <laughs> of GPB's podcast, The Credits, moderating a podcasting panel at the Macon Film Festival on August 17th. Details at thecreditspodcast.com. And now for what's being animated in Georgia. One of the longest-running shows on Adult Swim pokes fun at Southern stereotypes, but in the right way. The 12th season of Squidbillies premieres 
this Sunday. And on Thursday, Chuck Reese of the Bitter Southerner podcast will talk with the cast and creators of the show in front of a live audience at GPB. Squidbillies co-creators Dave Willis and Jim Fortier talked with then on Second Thought host Celeste Headley back in 2017. She's author of the book We Need to Talk and co-host of the upcoming PBS show Retro Report. So, Dave, you were actually born in Texas and raised in Conyers, right? Yes. The fact that I was born in Texas really has nothing to do Because you were with not that. conscious. No. When I was that not happened. conscious when but that But Conyers happened. isn't, you wouldn't call that a redneck town, right? A yeah, I, w- I would. You would. Jim and I were both raised in Conyers. So because, so. I, I mean, it occurs to me, I, I wonder how much of this, the town in Squidbillies is supposed to be in Blue Ridge up in the North Georgia mountains, mm-hmm. right? So how much of that is actually based on things you observed in Conyers? Taken to the extreme and the stereotype. Well, we haven't, I don't think, I mean, I, I haven't been to Conyers in, for any longer than a half a day in 20 years now. But when we moved there in the early 80s, it was still a developing place. It was still a sort of a much more of a country vibe and, and not very built up. It was one main road going through town and um, a two-screen cinema, you know, uh, at the time. Very, very small place, very, you know, friendly, and but really country. And I think my perspective was even more uh, vivid coming from the Midwest and coming in there at 11 years old and kind ha- of having a culture shock. Culture shock, work the accent out, uh, understand what people are saying, different personalities, different values, and it was it left a big impression on me. I think that we kind of we, we we enhance it and exaggerate it, yeah, uh, of absolutely. course, for the show, but. Um, that's, I think, where I'm drawing from. If you have never, if some of our listeners have never seen Squidbillies, it's this family of squids, and they're endangered. Uh, they're part of the Appalachian mud squids. So that's the nominal reason why they get away with just untold amount of property destruction and death. <laughs> Sounds good. Keep going. I'll, so, I'd watch this. Why, why squids? Uh, the word sounded funny, Squidbillies. I think our boss came in with the word one day and was like, Squidbillies. <laughs> like, yeah, I'd watch that show. <laughs> and then he was like, why don't you guys make it? So, Wait, so somebody, he came in with the, the, the word Squidbillies and the whole show came from that? Yeah, it's a funny word, Squidbillies. It is. So we just funneled a lot of our experience, not just the Conyers experience, but um, Atlanta, you know, Blue City in a red state. The fact that we're a whole network that's down here, which is not in New York or L.A., is it's you know we just funnel what we hear in our day-to-day lives, uh, you know, into the show. So let's hear a clip. And in this family, there's an alcoholic dad named Early, and and you might have seen his picture. Um, he often has that hat with a Confederate flag on it in memes that says "Heritage, not hate." And then there's the teen son named Rusty, and there's the mom who's called the Granny. Um, and then there's a little sister named Lil. So here's a little clip of the father, and he's talking to his son, Rusty. What did I tell you about perseverance, young man? That if at first you don't succeed, it wasn't meant to be. It's a waste of time because the union's just going to take your money anyway. And you are an unwanted pregnancy, and you ruined my dirt biking career. And get out of my sight. You disgust me. You talk about that one, Eddie. So, I mean, of all the, the anima- <laughs> of all the animated shows that come and go, because there's a lot, right? What do you think uh, keeps this one on the air and popular? What, what, is, what is the staying power? I think that our bosses feel guilty if they put us out on the street, because we've been there a <laughs> oh, really come long on. time. <laughs> they saw us have kids and families, and they feel responsible. 
I, that's not a, I, I don't feel like I can answer that question. I mean, I think mm -hmm. we pull in just as good an audience as yeah. almost anything else on the network. So the people who enjoy the show, who we are super appreciative of, I know that's a cop-out, but it's sort of a question for them. I mean, we're making a show that we sit across, you know, the, the old cliche, we sit across the room and talk about things that make us laugh and what we insane stuff we'd want to see animated with these characters, and we make that show. And we're not, they don't lord over us too carefully about what we do. Um, and I, th I think we just make that show, we put it out there, and maybe the fact that it's not being picked and poked by a hundred different people before it hits the screen, and it's just this dumb, silly, uh, animated redneck squid show just gives it a charm that keeps it on the air. So do you think, I mean, when you look at some of the shows that have some of the sort of edgiest material on them, they're often animated shows. Is that, is it because there's not a real person saying some of these things that you can, people tolerate it more? It's hard to make a, a live-action meth addict funny. Uh, yeah. But uh, animated somehow maybe takes a layer off of it or adds a layer. Maybe it adds a layer. I don't know. Of, of, of distance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What attracts you to the job of voicing something for animated as opposed to being a live actor in an actual TV or movie? Well, I would do the other thing, too. But, but no one's hiring for that. I mean, we, I mean, this is what we do. You know, we make cartoons, and uh, and then invariably, we find ourselves saying the lines in the way we want to hear them. And we try to cast uh, parts. I think Jim had, had said earlier uh, that we were we were trying to talk to. Unfortunately, we were tr we were trying to talk to Tom Petty about playing something for us, like the week before he passed, and. Uh, you know, we're looking for unique voices, specifically for Squidbillies, unique southern voices, and they're hard to find. They're hard to find that humor and that acting ability. And so when we find somebody, you know, they're like gold. I mean, somebody like Unknown Henson who plays early or, uh, you know, Bobby Ellerby who plays the sheriff is just a southern guy through and through. And he's also a funny guy as an actor. Daniel McDivitt who plays Rusty, he was a high school buddy of ours who's a pilot for Delta, who just happens to be a super funny guy who gets our sense of humor. When he, we, he chose a respectable career. Yeah, right. But <laughs> he can still work with us sometimes. What makes Atlanta a particularly good place for animation? I mean, is it just that Adult Swim is here, but there's all kinds of other projects thriving? Yeah, it's kind of interesting to have seen it all come here because uh, we you know we started we grew up here and we went to school in the south and I don't know of any other animation that was going on in in town at that time um, I guess the Georgia Film Commission started to try to bring people in you know they're shooting all these films and things the, the Archer guys were at Cartoon Network doing um, C-Lab yeah. uh, Dave and Matt Malero uh, were doing uh, Aqua Teen eventually uh, Chris Kelly working on a show he had, Stork and Hoop. Um, a guy, Michael O'Lean, across the street working on um, Harvey Birdman. Suddenly, all these, we were just making these shows because they wanted these shows to go on at night on Adult Swim. And b by way of doing that, they just kind of built it. And why, why is it good here? I don't know. The, we watched the community sort of grow out of nothing. We just kind of found all these folks one way or another and, and really built a relationship with them. And, created an industry you know we created it you me and dave no just kidding <laughs> but, but but you know it just kind of it sprung up i don't know what makes atlanta better or than some other place for me it's better because i never had to move and <laughs> we've been at it for 20 plus years you know in town and you can do all the same type of work here you can write a script here you can find a production company that's competent does a great job 
and we do that. That was Dave Willis and Jim Fortier, co-creators of the adult swim show Squidbilly. They were speaking there with founding On Second Thought host Celeste Headley. Squidbillies enters its 12th season on Sunday. This Thursday, Chuck Reese of the Bitter Southerner podcast is going to offer a sneak peek of the new season here at GPB. And you can be there as he speaks with cast and creators from the show. Details are at gpb.org slash bittersouthernerlive. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. June 28th was the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. That's when New York City police raided a popular gay bar in Greenwich Village, and the resulting clash and protests led to the very first gay pride parade. But Stonewall didn't have an immediate impact here in the South. It was another event, 50 years ago today, that galvanized Southern LGBT communities. On August the 5th of 1969, Atlanta police raided a cinema at the Ansley Mall. It's an event celebrated as the Stonewall of the South. Abby Drew was there that night. She's now director of the Ben Marion Institute for Social Justice. And she joined me to talk about the raid, along with activist Lorraine Fontana and LGBTQ historian Dave Hayward. That raid took place during a screening of Andy Warhol's Lonesome Cowboys. Let's just hear a little bit from the film to get a sense of it. Here's a scene where two cowboys are discussing hairstyling, as, you know, cowboys do. You should just let it grow a little bit longer here so you can, you know, pull it down and have a little... You want to treat me? Uh, of course, yeah. But you should, you know, just mess it up a little bit. Yeah. See? Yeah. Send apart. It sets off your eyes. <laughs> the cowboys with a Manhattan accent. Um, or for <laughs> Abby, you were there, right? <laughs> the movie interrupted 15 minutes and what happened? I dropped my submarine sandwich. <laughs> I was... Uh, prof- I was... So surprised. Number one, we were all there anticipating some more culture. I was there for the culture, not the two fellows in the hairdo. I had enough to deal with my own hair. But when the lights went on 15 minutes into it, mm-hmm. um, I didn't know what had happened. Well, I what had, was happened? Did, did they say? Well, they, then they did. I, I first looked up and turned around and saw four policemen in the, in the back row. And someone else yelled, what's going on? And another one said, we're being raided. Yeah. I guess I've seen too many movies. Police, yeah. this is a raid. Yeah. <laughs> they no, don't really they say that. They were as quiet as could be. And then I said, a raid? And at first I laughed. And then I didn't laugh. Well, uh, what what because, happened? Because they started uh, directing us all. They wouldn't allow anyone to leave. And there were people who were trying to get up and run out. And there were a lot of men who were doing that. And they, they stopped everybody. And then I began to get concerned. Mm. Did you uh, get arrested? I did not get arrested myself, but we were lined up by rows. We were told to line up, and then they interviewed each of us by asking different questions. To me, the first question was, uh, "Does my where's my husband?" And that is truly the question. And I was there with two straight friends of mine, a husband and a wife, and they looked at me and said, where is your husband? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) But people were... I'm not being funny. People were taken in, obviously. Yes, I watched people... I I watched other individuals who weren't treated... All of us had our our photos taken. Old flashbulb days. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like you had to show every ID. They then wanted to pursue where I worked, 
who I was, where I lived, how long had I been in Atlanta, and did the same with my my friends, but the ones we saw that had got arrested uh, were guys, and they were, uh, some of them, they were turning around and, and patting them down, and they were angry. Um, uh, we were not subjected to that. I wasn't. Um, and then they let us go and said, you can leave now, but you might be called for a court appearance where you need to as a witness. Did, the, did you tell them where you worked at the time? I told them where I worked at and the did, time. And did you ever hear anything about that? No, did they nothing, contact them? Nothing. Um, we left the theater, and it, w it was then that I s saw what was happening, and outside learned from some folks, uh, gay men and some wonderful drag queens who were on their own time trying to get to the movie, never made it inside. <laughs> so they were the real witnesses, and they were the ones who said they are arresting them on anything they can think of. Plus, there wasn't, it wasn't unusual. I'm sure there were plenty of drugs. Whoever cleaned up the theater afterwards probably made a good find. <laughs> and I wonder if they have my submarine sandwich. And they arrested, I think, the projectionist and the owner of the theater? Was that what happened? Yes, that was my uh, experience when I came out down at... Very, it's a narrow, mind you, little, little theater. It was long in the lobby, and George Ellis and his projectionist were behind the counter. This raid in Atlanta, a couple months after Stonewall, kind of galvanized the gay and lesbian community in Georgia. Bill Smith and Burl Boykin got together and started the Georgia chapter of the Gay Liberation Front. Dave, what did that early activism look like? Well, it was quite unruly <laughs> and the great unwashed. Actually, Bill Smith was uh, really an anomaly at the time because he was sort of a business person. And I recall going to my very first meeting of the Georgia Gay Liberation Front in 1971 when I first moved here. And I recall him chairing the meeting in a three-piece suit. And I was used to the Gay Liberation Front in Washington, D.C. that I helped start when I was a college student. And I thought, I'm not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's a three-piece suit. I never saw a three-piece suit at the uh, D.C. Gay Liberation Front. Um, you know, at the time, um, th I was reading articles in The Great Speckled Bird, and they were talking about driving all the quote-unquote homosexuals out of Piedmont Park. Mm -hmm. and oh, when right. I, they, they put up big lights in Piedmont Park, didn't they, to yeah. try and prevent any um, untoward activity? Yeah. Well, they, they were having police purges. A, bit, a lot of this, again, is Burl Boykin that I was, you know, it was my source. Um, but he said he, said he felt that... Uh, we were basically a hunted community, hmm. and um, he said that uh, it was really, it was, you know, it was very tense. Um, as a result of the Ansley Mall raid, Burl said that uh, they really started forming the Georgia Gay Liberation Front. Well, I wanted to stop you there because you yeah. compared these, this social movement or this activist movement to the civil rights movement, to women's rights. Um, so were they doing the same kind of tactics, you know, registering voters? I mean, uh, talking about specific policies or laws. What, what was the strategy? There? Yes, yes, I would definitely. We, and we, when we talk about this, we really stand on the shoulders of the civil rights movement, women's rights movement, anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, and Burl uh, said that uh, I did an interview with him. Um, he said that they had a speaker's bureau and they actually went and talked to a Baptist church, he and Bill Smith, which was pretty out there for, I think, you know, late. 60s early 70s mm -hmm. um, so yes and and it was it was slow um, 
Bill Burr also told me that uh, they had their very first Pride March in 1971, mm-hmm. and the city of Atlanta, the city too busy to hate, refused to grant them a permit for the march. And then, and then he said that they went to the Georgia chapter of the ACLU and said, well, can you please help us get a permit? And the Georgia chapter of the ACLU told them, no, we will not because you were not a minority. Oh. So we had to really, and as I think you know, uh, my friends will attest, we had to really assert ourselves as we actually are a movement. This actually does qualify as human and civil rights. Um, because even within the, the left, uh, there was a the whole thing, as I understand, with the communist doctrine that if you were homosexual, you were a capitalist and you therefore, you know, could not be a communist. I'm it not was, sure about the equation. I, I don't understand that at all. But no. that was. But I remember that that we had to really assert ourselves, even within the left and the progressive movement, and saying that you know, yes, we are a, a, a movement, and we would be criticized for having drag queens and having glitter and color and stuff like that in the marches. And we just had to say, look, this is this is how we do it. Okay, that we're, we're serious about our rights, but we're also festive and colorful and having fun. At the same time, we're having marches and protests. So galvanizing yeah. moment. What you, yes. what'd you well, see, Lorraine? Uh, I'm, I'm remembering, and I'm being reminded by <laughs> mm-hmm. what Dave said, that um, the left uh, and the activist movement outside the LGBT community, or which included some of us, obviously, was very diverse. Um, so although there were some Communist Party members and other organizations that were um, anti-gay in that way. You can't be a good communist and, and, um, and, uh, and be queer and be gay. Um, but a lot of us uh, early on, uh, especially the women that I knew who helped form Alpha, the Atlanta Lesbian Feminist Alliance, were from those very movements and were part of the new left, mm-hmm. were part of the anti-war movement, were part of the civil rights movement, and were part of the um, Atlanta left gay liberation. Well, I imagine that's where they learned their ground game on some level. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it, to us. It was just a continuation of the kind of social justice, community organizing, and struggle that we felt we were part of. Well, that was also yeah. an interesting part of those social movements—the fractionalizing. You know, that once you got into the women's movement, then it was, well, how about the women of color? What's their place? You know, we know that Baird Rustin, one of the great architects of the civil rights movement, gay man thrown out a couple of times of, of Martin Luther King's inner circle for his sexuality. So, I mean, is that just the nature of the game? And how did it, how did it come together after that? Any thoughts on that? Uh, I, uh, this is Lorraine again. I, I can only go from my experience with what happened with me when I, like I said, I was 68. I first came here when I was a, a Vista. But when I came back, I went back to New York City for a few months when I was applying for grad school. Ended up getting into Emory, so I came back to Atlanta because I really loved the people in Atlanta. Um, at that point is when um, I realized the connection that what did exist here, as it did in a lot of places in the country, we now call it intersectionality, but with many different movements. So uh, I know at the Great Speckled Bird in 69 is when the Women's Caucus formed. Uh, in 70, Atlanta Women's Liberation formed. In 71, the Gay Liberation Front and, and MCC in, 92, in 72 and Alpha in 72. Um, these women that I knew in the various New Left and uh, other movements here were the women who started coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I came out in that, in that community setting. 
Do you think, however, I'm going to ask you this, Abby, do you think that treatment of gay men and women was different? I think so. How so? And one thing that was striking me, too, was let's not forget when we talk about who was included and who wasn't, that to me it was very complex and layered for anyone who happened to be black Mm -hmm. in this city. It wasn't a time that we really looked at Hispanic or whatever, but the divisions and the cultures for gay men and lesbians, depending on whether you were white or black, really did uh, vary. How did you see that play out in treatment? Um, in terms of our own community, we would discriminate against one another. And I remember I had uh, some lesbian friends who would go to the Sweet Gumhead, a popular gay bar, and they had a whole strategy. Uh, my friend Joanne said that she and another white woman would go to the head of the line of the group of people they were in, and they would ask them for, like, one picture ID. And then they would wave to their friends in the back who were maybe Latina, uh, uh, African-American, and say, you only need one picture. <laughs> so that was their strategy. Because what they would do periodically, not only as we come had other bars, they would they would insist on multiple carding policies for people of color, yeah. and so so we we definitely would discriminate against one another. Unfortunately, that's not too many years after the Civil Rights Act passed, of right. course. Correct, and and also I. I want to say that um, it was sad, having come from where I came from, that I experienced an extreme racism and anti-Semitism in the gay community in Atlanta that I'm not so sure doesn't still exist uh, in terms of these different divides. And for a good while, what you're talking about in the bars and, and bringing them in later didn't occur in the earlier days in those bars. There was absolutely no admittance to blacks. Oh, they they wouldn't even let them in? Not even at at Gumhead. Wow. Let let me just identify Abby Drew there. You just heard speaking Lorraine Fontana is also with us, David Hayward, all members of the LGBTQ community in Atlanta for a long time. (laughs) Uh, We're reflecting (laughs) on on life in the South in the 60s and beyond and the formation of Georgia's own gay liberation and equality movements. I do want to ask you, though, Abby, you weren't just a professor, but then you were at City Hall, openly lesbian. Mm -hmm. How did you... How did you balance this, this less accepted identity at work? As you said, lesbians maybe could fly under the radar a little differently. But whose administration did you start in? I was, I started, I was hired in Sam Massell's, the end of his administration. Mm-hmm. And then with the two administrations of Maynard Jackson and then Andrew Young. And um, flying under the radar was never something I even thought about. No? No. So nobody I, I, ever, you know, people accepted this or just ignored your sexual I think identity? that, you know, when you're, sometimes the messages you give and how you present them um, are going to determine what people are thinking. If you're comfortable, chances are they'll be comfortable. But for me, there was a lot more uh, to talk about. And um, I think I was known first, you know, as Abby. There were no secrets of whatever. And there were concerns. And I found early on that I had a different kind of uh, vehicle to be an activist. And it wasn't on the streets. You mean policy? Abby, so you had, did you have, I understand that you kind of had the ear of Maynard Jackson. That's a powerful position. It was a very a position that took a lot of responsibility. And um, it took also a lot of trust. So what did that mean in terms of policy decisions or the things that you spoke with him about that, you know, these things need to change here in Atlanta? Early on and the things that I think I had learned um, that were a gift in terms of my own lifelong learning was to how to ask good questions and not to tell people what they need to be doing, 
but to ask what is the impact and you know what what is the value um, in the types of treatment there was a lot of issues that I had seen prior in uh, late 60s the raid how police worked all these things are dictated through a chain of, of folks and um, I was very concerned the treatment in Midtown of gay men was horrific uh, it later led on to the treatment of women in the bars, the few that there were, uh, where the police would wait and wait outside. And then if they were drunk, they'd get them on a DUI. Mm. And they would ask them, literally, uh, for a sexual favor, or they would take them downtown. Yeah. So there's, there was a lot to talk about to the mayor and uh, to begin to look at what else needed to happen in this city to write that, including the raids. And there was it was complex. Well, I could speak to you guys for a lot longer, but we have about half a minute left. Um, unfortunately, uh, Lorraine, just want to ask you, still very active in politics and social justice. In terms of the struggle for LGBTQ equality and rights, what do you see? Give me a couple of points that still need to be done. Well, I think people know that, uh, and from what Abby and, and Dave have said before, here in Atlanta, we never have really dealt with our own communities, um, racism, and and more recently the movement in general, and I think it still happens everywhere, including Atlanta. Um, there is that division between cisgender and transgender folks, and the importance of the transgender um, liberation movement. So I think um, both those things and the intersectionality, meaning there are we are everywhere. So we, yes, we are part of the struggles that happen in other communities because we are part of them, and that's important. Too. Well, I'm leaving that to Diana Ross then. For now, Lorraine Fontana, thank you so much for speaking with us. Abby Drew, Dave Hayward, thank you so much for We're speaking with out. us. We're yeah. coming out. <laughs> On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Allison Krausman. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar, and Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought from GBB.